Welcome to the podcast of New City Church. We hope this podcast inspires you on your journey of inward and outward transformation. Please join us on Sundays. You can find more information on our website, grownewcity.church. God bless you. We've been doing sacred witnessing Zoom calls uh, after every service, and it's just always a fabulous conversation. And last week, since the theme was about attention, we had a really interesting conversation about how we're going to be paying attention to our lives. And one of the things that I heard was um, people kind of this sense of like, I'm life is going so fast. I'm, I'm too busy. I have lots of stuff going on. Even during COVID, even if it's not like important things, it's just like lots of persistent things and overarching anxiety about our society. And, and it's just like, wow, 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 a lot of stuff going on. I wish I could just slow down was something that I heard a lot. I wish I could just slow down. And um, I'm not a pharmacist, but if I were and someone asked me, I wish I could just slow down, what I would choose for them is sadness. Because in my life, sadness has been the most reliable friend in being able to slow down life, to be able to remember what's important and to feel deeply, achingly about sadness. There's there's a certain like atemporal or like asynchronous way of sadness that kind of makes you forget time and and I slowly just be able to, I, often with sadness, I'm able to enter a type of attentiveness, a type of awareness that I'm not able to when I'm accessing my other emotions. Um, and I know that, like, we talk a lot about how, how we're navigating our emotions at New City. And sometimes I hear people say, like, um, you know, like, I just want to try to focus on the positive emotions and not the negative emotions. And sadness often gets put into the kind of the waste bin of, of a negative emotion. And I think that is such a misleading title to, to call sadness uh, negative. And maybe that's because um, for those of you who are familiar with Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram 7. My whole personality is founded upon like kind of this pathological positivity. <laughs> Where it's like, it's like so. There are some situations. Take it from me, where positivity or optimism or happiness isn't going to get you where you want to go. And in fact, like a lot of the problems of the world come from this kind of like avoidant, evasive positivity that refuses to look things in the eye and just wants to keep going. Just want all the pieces to be tied up. Just want to okay, 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 okay. Let's be positive. Let's focus on solutions, right? And it, and of course, there's a place for that, of course. And sometimes positivity can be pathological. And this is where sadness can be a great friend. Now, I know, of course, that there are many people in our community who struggle with sadness and and uh, this kind of like overwhelming storm of sadness. I know that there are lots of people in our community, especially during the winter, who struggle with sadness. And it feels almost like a privilege to be able to say that sadness is a friend when there's so much going on in your life. And I wanna, I wanna create a lot of space around that and and hold that. Um, I I would observe, however, two things. One is that often 
the suffering that sadness causes is not the sadness in itself, but the fear of being sad or being trapped in the sadness. You know, the sadness is like, oh man, I'm feeling so much, like this grief in my body. And the body's like, oh my gosh, this is uncomfortable. And I, and whenever our body experiences anything uncomfortable, it's always like, I don't want to experience this and I don't want to stay in it. And that's gotten us out of a lot of problems, a lot of tricky situations. And that awareness is really helpful. And sometimes the tenseness that we feel around anticipating the discomfort of sadness is worse than the sadness itself. Like (laughs) people um, are always like, um, even for something as trivial as like uh, our Heal the Space sermon series that we did in the spring, where we were talking about healing our our living uh, space and getting rid of things that are no longer uh, part of the life that God is calling us to live and r- a reminder that we're paying rent for every single object that we own and like that is not a good stewardship if that object doesn't like create this sense of, of purpose and value and beauty that is the kingdom of God. So in the Heal the Space thing, we uh, Heal the Space sermon series, we talked about getting rid of even like mementos or nostalgic things. And there's some sadness there. Of course there's sadness. However, as someone who has traveled through the Heal the Space journey, the sadness of getting rid of something is so minuscule in comparison to the sadness and the dread and the uh, weariness of, of getting prepared to get rid of something. Like that's, that's where the pain is. And that's not only true for your favorite childhood quilt that you uh, keep in a plastic bag that you never use. (laughs) It's also true for like life. And as it just turns out from the conversations I've had, folks are in kind of a spot right now, uh, feeling some sadness, maybe some mental health stuff. The, I know that the holidays are always a lot. Uh, one Twitter person said, <laughs> tweeter said, uh, Christmas is basically like another part-time job <laughs> in America. Like there's a lot that goes into it. You might be feeling some like from that. Um, and I also just want to name that this, for many people, this was their first holiday season without a loved one around them. Um, this was a really hard season for, for folks because there was a lot of death this year. And h- holidays are always hard whenever people experience that, especially because it's in the deep of winter. And I know that that can be really hard. I also know that sadness can be a friend. And the reason why that's important in naming is because if we... Uh, how we name our problem determines how we discover the solution. I've used this framework a couple times in, in New City because I think that God is always adjusting our frame, is always kind of trying to shift us to approaching things differently. And I think sadness is no uh, exception to that. Because if sadness is a friend, then the answer to living a happy life isn't just getting rid of sadness, right? Like if we say that sadness is a negative emotion, then 
our life is better, the less sadness that there is. And I don't think that that's the case at all. Um, sadness can be, in certain circumstances, exactly the thing that needs to happen in your body. And if we try to eliminate sadness, it ironically will just drive more sadness. A poetic metaphor for this is um, a vaccine. Like right now, COVID-19 vaccines are a really big deal. And what is a vaccine? A vaccine is a little bit of the very thing that you fear most being intentionally put into your body under very particular circumstances and by doing so, guaranteeing that that uh, that thing that is in you won't be the thing that ends you. <laughs> Vaccines are such a powerful, potent image for us because what vaccines teach us is that if we want to eliminate something or get rid of something, usually it requires some type of embrace or invitation of that thing under very particular circumstances, right? Like, like we would never get rid of any disease if we just like wantonly expose ourselves to it. But if we can set boundaries, certain parameters, circumstances, intentionality, and prepare our hearts for it in a certain kind of way, we can lean into the very disease that we want to eliminate and take it upon ourselves so that we know in our bodies how to cope with that. And this is kind of what sadness is like. Like sadness isn't just the, like this negative emotion that's like, uh, let's just ban sadness. No, it's my birthday, so no one cries today. Like how many times have we heard stuff like that? And it's like, okay, actually like the, the only way that we'll eradicate sadness is by being sad and like willingly, courageously taking on sadness and not being afraid of it. Which doesn't mean like kind of doing that like, sorry, Enneagram Force, I'm just going to pick on you a little bit. Like sometimes we can kind of like overly like become entranced with sadness and wallow in it like a wall, like crystal ball, like <laughs> that's, that's not what I'm talking about here because that's not what a vaccine is. Like a vaccine is like, I'm going to take in an appropriate, intentional amount of this and just let this live in my body for a little bit without getting sucked in, but just like sit with this for a second, pray about this for a second. Um, and, and that's uh, caused huge, just even that observation has caused huge leaps and strides for people in not only mental health, but really spiritual growth. The difference being like spiritual growth being like kind of like the story or the, the undergirding of your whole being, how you're approaching the world is like, whoa, wait a second. You're telling me that God is a God who didn't eradicate sin by just wiping off all the bad people, but instead took sin, took the full blast of sin when he was executed in public and like showed that we can survive and resurrect through that, not despite of that even. Like God is the God who like kung fu'd uh, sin into like this amazing thing. Jesus is, is a Christ who composts the death of our lives and turns it into the conditions of new life again. Huh. 
that's a savior I want to sign up for. Like, that's a religion that I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm in, I'm in, yeah, hi, hi. My, my buzzer is ringing and I'm, and I'm ready for my table. Remember when we used to eat at tables? Okay, anyway, so like that's, that's kind of like what we're talking about here. Like there's a spiritual task to approaching the very things that you are most afraid of, most uncomfortable with, and, and sitting with it or praying with it or wrestling with it in community often is helpful in such a way that God starts to show how even that thing can be your friend in that. And I think a great scriptural example of this in the, in the Bible of, of what I'm talking about is in the book of Jeremiah. Um, so Jeremiah has kind of a nickname as the weeping prophet. He, um, some biblical scholars believe that he was the one who wrote the book of Lamentations, which is called Lamentations. <laughs> uh, that's not, not everyone agrees with that, but, um, like, in Jeremiah 4, we see this line, Oh, my suffering, my suffering, my pain is unbearable, my heart is in turmoil, it throbs nonstop. Like, that's where Jeremiah is. He, like, he is mourning for a society and a world that he loves that is going to be destroyed, and he is bereft in, like, most of Jeremiah. And I think that, that there's a certain consolation in knowing that even people who are feeling totally consumed at the very like bottom part of the valley of sadness are represented in the Bible. Like there's a, there is a godly wisdom present in people going through like deep sadness and so much so that we dedicated like a whole bunch of these pages to it. You know, like the Bible is one of the most printed books in is the most printed book in the world. Like it's the most read book in history. Like, do you think that if they could have like saved and sh like shaved off a couple of pages, they would have, <laughs> you know, like, like there's like a lot of these getting printed. If they saved like one page, it would have, you know, like we're talking about millions of dollars difference here. All that to say, that's kind of a farcical way of saying, like, we intentionally made space in the Bible for people who are experiencing lament. Um, not in the way that, like, when you're at a party and someone's crying and you're like, oh, no, go to the corner. Oh, my gosh, what a, what a wet blanket. What a bummer. But we'll create space for you. But what a bummer. It's like <laughs> we're creating space for you because we believe that God moves through sadness at least as much as God moves through happiness and joy. Like, I, I know all the ways that God moves through hopefulness and faith and, and joy. And, like, of course that is true. But, man, there's wisdom in sadness. When we find a way to, like, ride through the storms and not be consumed by the sadness, to not wallow in it completely, but just to, like entertain it as a visiting guest for a while, when we find a way to befriend our sadness, major wisdom doors update. And I think that the example of that is in Jeremiah, because our reading in Jeremiah, I'm going to put this down. It's not really good form for a pastor of a congregation with a bunch of queer people to like literally wag a Bible at them. <laughs> the point is that Jeremiah felt really sad 
a lot of the time, and he was one of the most influential, prolific prophets that ever existed in the history of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Sadness, Jeremiah teaches us, sadness is the dark soil for prophecy. Because it's only when we fully, deeply, really feel grief, lamentation, and sadness, sometimes despair over what is going on, that, that the, the fertile imagination of what our world can be starts cropping up. Our reading today was beautiful and amazing. It was talking about turning weeping into dancing. It was had a vision for young men and old men all like joining in to the celebration, young women and like the earth rejoicing and being bountiful. And you know the way that you get that type of vision? You know the way that like you become so passionate about that world that you write scripture about it? It's from feeling sadness. Because only when we feel sadness around something do we realize that the, there's more, there's, there's something missing, there's something amiss that needs to be rectified. Like the sadness is like, hey, I'm letting you know that your current reality isn't how things have to be. And that is where the imagination for a new world comes from. That's where this bold vision of like, what could happen differently in the future, you know, goes forward. This is why, by the way, <laughs> like, so many queer organizations are founded and led by people who have experienced deep sadness uh, about uh, persecution in their own queer lives, or from seeing their child uh, is facing persecution. And that sadness is what, like, through the sacred compost that is the Holy Spirit, becomes ministry of advocating for a new world. Like, where would the queer rights movement be if there weren't people who stopped to feel sad about something for a while? Sadness is the dark soil for prophecy. And imagine how different our world would be if we collectively as a society understood that, um, one thing is we wouldn't be saying, how many times do you hear, um, I'm gonna be strong, I'm not gonna cry. Or even worse, be strong, don't cry, right? Like, I feel like I hear that all the time. Still, even when more people are in therapy, right? Like, it's like amazing to me how many people put strength and sadness in contradiction to each other. Like, be strong, don't cry. And I, I mean, that, that couldn't be more repulsive to, to my sensibility of the gospel. Like, I think that Jesus is like, hey, I died on the cross. Was I not strong? Like, I was crying in the garden. Like, was that not strong? I think the witness of Jesus says that there is deep, strength in crying and feeling sadness and and this like toxic uh strength infatuation of our society i truly think is is a at, at best naivete and at worst just a full-blown expression of the empire uh, of the very forces that are going to stop the kingdom of god from taking place uh, from flourishing in this world 
The second way that I see the empire showing up around sadness, and I want to be very, like, I want to carve a very delicate path with this, is um, sometimes tears can be weaponized, especially in conversations about marginalization. It's, it's often the case that uh, conversations about oppression, racism, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, uh, uh, immigration and documentation, like all of these things um, make people from dominant identities feel uncomfortable. And one of the ways that our, our bodies react to that discomfort can be crying. However, when a person of a dominant identity starts crying in the face of a marginalized person who's talking about real issues, like real systemic issues, it's so insidious because it drives the attention away from the marginalized person and toward the person who is crying. Now, don't get it twisted. Like, I'm not saying that um, people of dominant identities should never cry. In fact, I kind of wish that certain people of dominant identities, especially men, would cry more. What I'm saying is that tears and sadness should be a display of weakness and tenderness and vulnerability and and aching and and wisdom. And somehow, like, tears can be used to weaponize. That's the way the empire, right? Like what is supposed to be for weakness is weaponized. Mayada gave me this alliteration, I'm butchering it still. There's a history of the tears of some people being weapons while the tears of other people are weakness. Whoo, Mayada's so good at this. Yeah, like there's the history of like, sometimes tears can be used to oppress people and sometimes tears are falsely named as an indication of weakness and actually, both of those are strategies of the same supremacist mindset that says, like, domination and control are the only way to run a society. And Jesus is pretty frank, like, the opposite of that is how we will be healed. Like, we need to, like, vaccinate ourselves with pain and difficulty and, and longing so that we can live into a wiser, more prophetic way of being in the world. It seems so straightforward to me when, when we lay it out like this, but it's so often twisted and manipulated in the public discourse. Whereas another example, how many times have women in a male-dominated workspace have had to decide that they're not going to cry because they know that if their colleagues see them cry, that they won't take them seriously? Like, with that said, it is critical that you go about appropriately with boundaries, perhaps with community, exploring some of your sadness as you're getting going in 2021. Like how many times did we hear last year, like, oh my gosh, I can't wait for 2020 to be over. 2020 has to be done. We have to be through with 2020. And it's like, boo boo, the ghosts of 2020 are gonna show up in 2021 <laughs> like just because a, a chronological time period that is arbitrarily marketed that isn't even universally believed in in other societies like other societies don't have a 365 day year right <laughs> like like us being able to say 2021 does not mean that things are going to get better the way that things are going to get better is from us having a contemplative and spiritual understanding of our own weakness and sadness and um, and addressing the pain of 2020 in like intentional, 
proactive ways instead of just kind of like stuffing all of 2020 in the trunk and hoping that it doesn't explode, right? Like we have to be intentional about cultivating wisdom from the pain of 2020 in order for us to be able to move into 2021 prophetically. I used to work in the restaurant industry. And one of the things about working in the restaurant industry is that you have to clean as you go. You can't wait for all of the hustle and bustle to be done before you start cleaning the tables and bussing stuff and wiping stuff down. Like you have to be doing that as you're meeting new, (laughs) not that customers are problems, but for the sake of the sermon, like you have to be cleaning some of the mess as you're meeting new problems simultaneously. And I kind of feel like we're all in the service industry spiritually in terms of like, we have to clean as we go in our prayer life. We can't wait for life to be a perfect stasis before we can uh, go on on our vision retreat to a mountain for 10 years and then come back. Like sometimes, like of course I'm all about retreats, but sometimes we have to clean as we go. Like sometimes we need to take 15 minutes to cry in a bathroom and then come back out to work, right? Like sometimes we need to spend an evening listening to a sad playlist, even when the things that we're crying about aren't done being sad yet. We have to clean as we go. And I and as I was kind of saying with the playlist, like there are, it is helpful for us to be able to have prompts or art that allows us to access the sad part of ourselves. Um, in fact, in the comments, I would love to hear like, what is like a sad song that's like, yep, I can listen to this one be ready to go. I would, lo- I would love to hear that um, because I, I love listening to sad songs when I need to, you know, intentional sad time. Did I not talk about intentional sad time yet? Intentional sad time is um, like I'm a seven and I know that I always flee away from uncomfortable emotions and I never want to be trapped in uncomfortable emotions. So sometimes I go through my day and I'm like, I'm not feeling any discomfort or sadness. I'm not, I'm fine. I know that a messed up thing just happened. I know that I just did a lot of emotional labor for someone. I know I just offered some pastoral care to someone who just went through like some pretty messed up stuff. Ah, oh, chapter la 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 la. Where are my crafts? Right? And it's like, sometimes I need intentional sad time to just be like, whether or not I'm feeling sad, I'm going to engage uh, like Coco the movie or a playlist, Hamilton, and I'm just going to intentionally feel sad and let my body express the things that perhaps I'm moving too fast to, to really get into. In this regard, we don't have time to not grieve. I know that productivity mindset always says like, I, don't, I just don't have time for these things. I don't have time for these things. I got to go. I got to go. I got to go. And I think what we see is that there's so much emotional plaque that builds up on our soul, that eventually we lose more time by not feeling, by not expressing than we would if we just took an evening to listen to some sad songs or took a season to work on an art project or go on like a giant hiking trip just to like process with some things or have a really loving conversation with someone who's supportive of you or engaging art or writing a letter to yourself. Like there's a there's a lot of ways to go about it, but all of whatever amount of time or energy that it takes to go about doing those like kind of micro processing of emotions, 
will definitely amount to less than if you stuff down your emotions and then just wait for your entire life to explode. Because it's coming. Like, what did 2020 teach us but that we kind of have to have, like, Ready Player One stance of, like, okay, life is going to throw a lot of stuff our way, and and we have to have this uh, agility, this, like, emotional readiness <laughs> to, to address it, and we won't be able to have that if we have a backlog. So my invitation for all of you is to clear out the backlog, to clean as you go, and to sit with sadness, not so long that it kind of starts to like fester or you like start to clutch into like my precious sadness, like none of that, but just long enough that your sadness becomes the dark soil of prophetic life. You have wisdom in you that the world needs to hear that will never be unlocked unless you fully and deeply engage your sadness. The good news is that you have a church community that can remind you that you are not alone in any of this. And the best news of all is that God is with us. Happy New Year, everyone. Amen.